Amen. Let's grab our Bibles and let's go back to our study in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're still in verses 15, or rather 17 and 18 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is a series I'm calling, or this exposition of 1 Timothy, I'm calling Beautifying the Bride, because that's what Paul's doing. He is, in essence, pastoring the church at Ephesus through Timothy. He's writing to Timothy. He's aged. Young Timothy's been left in charge, and he says, all right, Timothy, let's get this church functioning according to God's wisdom and according to God's design so that the church does what it's on earth to do. It magnifies, it shows forth God's power, God's wisdom, and God's beauty. So all these components and all of these parts are essential for the church to show God's wisdom, beauty, and power. Look, folks, it's not enough for the church to be successful. That's not the goal. There's a whole lot of what's called success in church life today that dishonors God. It's success in man's eyes. We want the church to be successful in God's wisdom, by God's power, for God's glory. We want it to make a statement that his way is better than our way. His, his design is wiser than our design. So that's why we dive in here. And while 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, the pastoral epistles are not exhaustive, they are quite comprehensive of the main things we need to grab hold of. Now, we've come to this section in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, and now we are on part three of church members' duties to their pastors. Church members' duties to their pastors. You may not want to take notes today. It's going to be a little bit more involved maybe. I'm fine if you do, but you may not want to. And um, I might give as a disclaimer that I would not have spent this much time and would not have put together this message that is application if it were not for the number of church leaders and pastors who follow our ministry, and they need to hear this, and the fact that this will be part of what I'll be teaching in the Pastoral Training Institute. So if you're out there somewhere and thinking, do I need this refresher? Do I, could I, do I need to sit under these lectures Brother Jeff's going to be doing at the Anchored in Truth Pastoral Training Institute? Well, if you like what I'm sharing, you're going to get 40 hours of this kind of stuff. Thoroughly biblical, but radically practical, holy local church-centered stuff. And when you get through with the Pastoral Training Institute, you'll have a notebook of all of these areas of church life you can turn to, and it'll be built on what we've experienced here at Grace Life Church. It's not just theory, and it's not just doctrine and theology. As vital as that is, it's doctrine and theology in shoe leather. How can we live it out? All right, let's look at it together. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes to Timothy to make sure in the church at Ephesus, he says this, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, while this is an exhortation about church leaders and about pastors, and while it is true Uh, It would just be untrue if I didn't say it. You at Grace Life exemplify the truth of this verse. You have through the years learned and made faithful practice of honoring and double honoring your pastors. Um, I'm not saying you've arrived. We all need to keep repenting and keep growing. But nevertheless, you are a good model of this. But nevertheless, there's still some things you can learn as we go through this again. 
So I want you to listen and think on the things you need to understand better and the ways you need to grow. Um, for 2 Timothy 1.16 is a good, good verse. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Here was a man in his household who made it their aim to be a blessing to God's preacher, the household of Onesiphorus. They, they, it was just their goal to be an encourager and a help to God's preacher. Um, Grace Life Church, I think you guys have the spiritual gift of encouraging pastors. You say, Brother Jeff, I've read the Bible, and I don't see the spiritual gift of encouraging pastors in there. Well, it's a figure of speech. I know that's not, quote, a spiritual gift, but I do know hundreds, that's not exaggerating, hundreds of pastors who come to our conference or come through here and say, Brother Jeff, your people are such an encouragement because I read the things in the Bible the local church ought to be doing and how they ought to be doing it, and I get around your folks, and they embrace it. They don't resist it. They're not against it. They embrace it, and they encourage me to keep on going. So thank you for being that kind of people. So we're going to look at this again. Now we come to a major area of application from these truths. Let's remind ourselves of what the text has told us so far. He says, okay, Timothy, as you begin to install elders in the church there, the local church there, first of all, when an elder holds that office, that position, he's to be honored. Now, that's not said exactly in the text, but it's thoroughly implied. The office of pastor-teacher ought to be honored. Then he says, if a guy in the office of pastor-teacher has presided well, he uses the phrase rule well, then he's worthy of double honor. And then he goes on to say, and especially so if he's worked hard at preaching and teaching. So you could imply triple honor, (laughs) okay? I'm not literally saying that's what it says because that's not what it says, but that's the implication of the text. Honor, if he's had a track record, you've watched him for a while and he's done well, double honor. If he's done well for a while and has been working hard at particularly preaching and teaching, then especially take good care of him. Now, the word honor there in the context can only mean uh, material or financial compensation. That doesn't mean you don't honor him with your heart and with other, in other ways, but it has to include that. The context gives us no other option. So thinking about, now, why would Paul say honor, double honor, and even more so if he's worked hard at preaching and teaching? Why such an emphasis on taking care of the pastor? Uh, that, that again, and I said this in an earlier message, for myself, after I was converted at age 19 and just came into ministry all at once, that kind of thinking was rather shocking to me. I wasn't ready for that. I was, I was more of Roman Catholic uh, vow of poverty theology, which is unbiblical. But I would have been closer to that than I would have been to anything else. And uh, I found out I was more conservative than God. And so we have to just repent wherever we are and get in line with what the Lord says. But why would Paul make such a strong statement, especially involving the financial compensation to men in the office of elder? Well, two main points and several subpoints under them. And again, all this is basically application of the text. Roman number one, because of the unique challenges you face when you work hard at preaching and teaching. The unique challenges you face when you work hard at preaching and teaching. 
It is quite a journey to go into a, the typical. Now, you're not typical. Matter of fact, let me say this. There are few churches, very few, where a young pastor could be called in to take over and he'll not have to fight many, many battles to get to the place where he can work hard at preaching and teaching. In the overwhelming majority of congregations, he faces so many difficulties in getting the people to the place where they will allow him the freedom to do what the Bible tells him to do, to pour his energies into preaching. It's just tough. And I face it everywhere I go. I teach it over and over again. I exhort and rebuke and reprove church leadership. Free your pastors up to do this task. Unique challenges. Number one, our A, most everyone is working against his pursuit. Most everyone, typically speaking, not absolutely, but typically speaking, when a pastor begins his work, And he wants to dive in and say, the great majority of my energies is going to be in study and prayer and preaching and teaching. The majority of the folks around him, whether they're up to something sinister or not, yet nevertheless, they work against his pursuit. I wrote down a couple of things here. 75% of professing Christians will discourage him in this pursuit, and 100% of non-believers will. For example, if if you go out in the community and find the average lost person who has no real biblical training, and you ask them, well, what really should a minister be doing? They'll tell you everything but studying and preaching and teaching, helping the sick, helping the indigent, social justice, all kinds of community needs. They're not bad. Those aren't bad things. They're just secondary to what God says he must put first. And then when you don't do enough of those public things and pour yourselves into what God tells you to do, then they'll tell you, well, you're part of the problem. You, you, you're, you're not doing what you ought to be doing. As if we're supposed to go out to the unregenerate world and get their approval on our ministries. Listen to me. God calls a man to preach and his approval is all that ultimately matters. But nevertheless... I think generally speaking, a man will find 75% of professing Christians in one way or another will be against or be a factor against him giving himself to study, preaching, and teaching, and 100% of the world will be. A couple of quick verses. In Acts 4.18, when the religious leaders, the God-fears, the ones who claim to be God's people of the day, they had summoned them and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, these were the religious leaders of the day. That's not important. That's not what you should be doing. That's what we stand against is you preaching and teaching the things of Jesus. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 15, we have a man named Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander the coppersmith has a very successful and financially profitable business of making idols and selling them to the people. Well, Paul comes through preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and telling them to throw their idols away that God is no statue and find God through the faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And he was hurting the business. There have been more than a few businessmen through the years who hated the preacher because his preaching undermined the sin in their business that was helping them make a lot of money. So whether it's the religious, quote, God fears, end of quote, of the day, or whether it's the secularists who just don't like his message, he faces a unique challenge when most everyone is working against his pursuit pursuit to be a faithful preacher and teacher of the Word of God. Well, that's probably one unique challenge that would lead Paul to say something like, make sure you give them double honor 
Number two, he has to daily fight his own flesh. This is, this is one of the tough ones. It was, it's so tough for me and has been. And especially our fleshly temptation to fear man. The fear of man. What will people think of me if I don't do this? Will people complain or start a, a, a movement in the church to, to be against me if I don't meet that need or if I don't do what this person wants me to do? And it just multiplies and multiplies. It's a difficult thing. I think this is one reason why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Daily, I have to remember that I answer to one person. Brothers and sisters, when you call a pastor, you do not hire someone. You affirm God's leadership to give you God's man. He's not hired. God hires him, and he answers to God, and he has to fight daily, daily the temptation. What if I, what if I offend this brother, and he gives large offerings to the church? On and on it goes. Daily he has to fight that. Proverbs 29, 25 reminds us the fear of man brings a snare. It does bring a snare when you're fearing what they're going to say and you begin to capitulate and not do what God's called you to do. Acts chapter 6 is such a foundational verse, I think, for the church because it outlays with such resounding clarity the importance of letting men have their time to study and pray and preach and teach. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose among the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, here we have some racism in the church. Those of the Greek background were being kind of overlooked, and those of the Hebrew background were being taken care of. A prejudice in the church. By the way, we're all sinners still repenting, amen? But I'm telling you, when stuff like this is found, it must be repented of and done away with, especially in the church. Verse 2, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Wow. Do you know in most Baptist churches, that would get you fired. If you came to most Baptist pastors and said, our dear sweet widow ladies are not getting enough food, and you say, well, it's not right for me to take care of that. I've got to go study and preach. Let's get some godly men to take care of that, and I'll do, I'll do my studying and preaching. That's exactly what the text is saying. So they have a plan. I believe these are the first deacons. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. We'll oversee them. They'll answer to us, but they're in charge of this task. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then later on, ministry kept spreading. Saying all that to say that um, I guarantee you there was some grumblers among the early Christians about, well, why didn't the pastors take, are we not important to the pastors? Is my mama not important to the pastors? Is my grandmother not important? Just on, you can just see how the dominoes would have fallen. Can you imagine how these early apostles had to die to the natural human tendency to please men at this point and stand on what was right? It's not easy to do. I remember the days long, long time ago, 30 years ago, when there was a prominent woman Sunday school teacher in this church, and this will shock some of you. But she told her Sunday school class that I was Jim Jones. 
And I've never worn sunglasses in the pulpit or anything like that. See, he's just a Jim Jones. He just got his way he's going to do things, and that's the way he's going to do them. Here's my point. Look, you show me in the book where I'm wrong, and I'll agree with you. I want to be biblical. I want to be pleasing to God. Well, she, she left our church 30-something years ago, and she's in heaven today, I trust by God's grace. But anyway, that's the kind of stuff you, it's not easy to hear that stuff. So it's hard to keep remaining faithful. Let me say this. Things like what I would call personal care or personal ministry, mercy rather ministries, those are important things and those are good things. But once a church is over 30 in size, a pastor cannot any longer do what God has told him to do in studying and preaching and teaching and also do all the personal mercy care ministries church members would like for him to do. So he has to start saying no, hopefully kindly and sweetly, but he has to start saying no. And here's the catch on this thing. It's very rewarding to minister to someone and care for them and then be blessed by it. It really is a blessing to do that. I'm telling you, it's a blessing to me, and especially when you've been with folks as long as I have. It's really hard not to want to do that. But I believe in many ways it's a satanic trap. Because you take 800 members or so like what we've got, and then add folks outside of our church that are your friends and relatives that are very near and dear and close to you, if you were personally ministered to by a single pastor every time there was a real critical need among all of those people, that's, it's, it's virtually impossible. Not that a pastor wouldn't want to, but here's what I'm saying. He's battling his own flesh in the fear of man to know that I've got to draw the line sometime. And one of the, this whole message I'm giving to you came from my time of meditating on the truth of this text. Very, very few pastors have a congregation like you that will give their pastor time to incubate and meditate on the truth of the Word of God. You might be saying, well, we're giving you too much if you've got three messages on two verses. Well, again, my disclaimer was this, this, this is for pastors primarily, and that's why I put the extra work in here. I was um, just started in my pastorate here, and I, we, I went to a, a little pastor's conference. There were four or five of us pastors in a car, and there was a pastor in the back seat, and he, that was back when we had beepers. Y'all remember beepers? Well, that was a long time. You young people don't know what I'm talking about. Well, I remember them because I used to preach and somebody's beeper would go off. And they'd, some of them would jump up like they were shot out of a rocket. Just, because, oh, you know, they were, they were on call as a nurse or something. It was important. They needed to get that. And they'd buzz you and you'd have to go call that number on the beeper. Well, I kept hearing this buzzing and I look in the back seat and it was the pastor behind me and he had a beeper on. And I said, what is that? He said, that's a beeper. He said, every one of my church members have this number because I want them to get me anywhere, anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, I believe his heart was genuine, but my first thought was, then how are you going to preach like God's called you to preach if you train your people to call on you continuously? I mean, a pastor has a battle to fight his flesh because, listen, personally caring for people it's a very powerful thing to the fallen flesh. It makes you feel good. And it's a fight, excuse me, it's a fight he has to face. At the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he said, quote, I have fought the good fight. 
Whatever else I have fought the good fight means, Paul included there, I fought myself. Matter of fact, Paul said, I buffet my body. I fight myself and not allow myself to do what feels good or what seems natural or what's going to make the people happy. I have to fight it and die to it and stay on track with what I'm called to. You're so wonderful to support me in this, but we didn't start out that way. (laughs) We've grown to get there together through the years. Number three, another unique challenge that maybe is one of the reasons the apostle says, especially those who work hard at preaching, teaching, are worthy of double honor. Satan hates this work and tirelessly works to thwart him. Satan hates it. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, the apostle wrote, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. I don't know exactly what that means, but you can, you can, you can be sure And I know that I know that I have an army of prayer warriors who are praying for your pastor to stay in the Word. I know you are because that's what you want more than anything. But you wouldn't believe the stuff mentally, emotionally, and physically you have to get through to get into the Word of God sometimes. It's It's just tough. There are weeks when it's just dry. There's weeks when it's just not rewarding. And then there are weeks when it's just glorious beyond all compare. I believe Satan's behind a lot of those discouragements. Satan certainly works through lost church members and carnal church members. Sometimes Satan works through well-meaning church members who don't understand what the pastor's primary role or job is. But Satan is a most masterful strategist. He attacks in countless ways. And the preaching pastor faces satanic and demonic opposition that others simply do not face. Think about it for a moment. Who did Satan attack more than anybody in the days of Jesus? Jesus. Why? Satan hates the Word. He's the living Word. He's a literal living Word of God. So where's Jesus manifested today? Through the preaching of the written Word of God. And that's why he attacks it. He, Satan, have you ever heard this phrase? And this, this is one of those phrases. That makes me want to go run through a wall. Just just frustrates me when I hear it. Here's the phrase. Are you listening? Here's when a church member says, well, he's not a very good preacher, but he's a good pastor. Where in heaven's name did you get that nonsense? Preaching is pastoring. All of us can have the gift of service. All of us can have the gift of mercy. All of us can love one another in agape but not all of us are called to preach. Preaching well and preaching faithfully and preaching in the power of the Spirit is the best shepherding of the flock. Not that there are not other things. I still enjoy, uh, I've done several funerals in the last few months. I still enjoy weddings. I still have counseling appointments. we, We mark off hours every week for counseling appointments in the office. I still enjoy that, but you've got to be careful because that can be a satanic trap. Because Satan does not want Jesus to be manifested through the preaching of the Word of God. D or number four. Another reason perhaps why the Apostle Paul said this office is worthy of double honor is he occupies a lonely place. He occupies a lonely place. The Apostle Paul is an example of having experienced this. In 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, 
and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Paul's basically saying, I'm pretty much by myself. I pretty much find myself alone. Here's one that really tugs at your heart. 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. What he means is the first time I was called before the Roman government through the agency of the Jews and count and threatened all those that I saw come to faith in Christ, all of those who are my associates at that point shrank back and didn't stand with me. Decades ago, when you called me to be your senior pastor, we had a a good man in the church, and he came and said, Brother Jeff, you need to be our pastor. We need the preaching of the word, and we believe you're God's man to do this. And I said, you know, a lot of things will have to change in the church if I become your pastor. There's some things that just aren't sound and just not biblical. And I said, I want to know one thing. Here's the way I say it. When I begin to change these things, are you going to stand with me? Are you going to go run for the tall grass? It's one thing for you to say, we need you as our pastor. Another thing to say, we're with you if you become our pastor. And to his defense, to this day, he stood. And I thank God for men like that. Even our Lord Jesus found that in his greatest hour of need in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked the disciples to pray, and twice he went to check on them, and they were asleep. He occupies a lonely place. For a faithful preaching pastor, even his close friends will not completely understand it. Even his family doesn't completely get it. And even his wife, as wonderful as a blessing a pastor's wife can be, Nevertheless, even the most faithful of wives does not quite grasp it. I'll never forget talking with the pastor just south of here, and I used to know him quite well. I think he's in heaven now, but he told me one day, he said, Brother Jeff, from the moment I surrendered to the ministry, my wife has hated every day of it. So in his case, not only did he face the other difficulties, but he came home every day to a wife who hated what he did. He occupies a lonely place. No one can fully grasp the calling and the load that he carries. But you know what? God gives you some that genuinely do. A lot of you, I think, genuinely strive to grasp and support your pastor. You certainly do. I'll never forget Wayne and Nancy Kraft. Most of you remember Wayne and Nancy. They, They came here from Detroit. He grew up in Hamilton, I believe it was, and he became a cop in Detroit. I usually don't say cop, but that's the word he would use. And um, when he came to Grace Life Church, he and Nancy came to me and said, Brother Jeff, we want to join your church, and we want to take the senior adult ministry. We want to take it off of you. We're going to visit them. We're going to love them. We're going to go to the homes. We're going to go to the hospitals. We're going to go to the nursing homes. We'll take care of it because we want that off of you. And I said, that is amazing. I've never heard anybody say anything like that. I said, it was some years later. I said, Wayne, where did you get... And he lived it, by the way. He lived it out. He and Nancy, they lived it completely. I said, where did you get that kind of insight and that kind of compassion? He said, when I was in Detroit, there weren't a lot of Baptist churches up there, but um, I joined a little Baptist church, and we had a visitation program. And on the night we'd go out to try to witness and reach out to prospects for the church, usually it was just me and the pastor. 
And one night we were out visiting together. We knocked on a couple of doors and didn't find anybody. So we thought we'd go to the donut shop. He said, you know, the cops know where all the donut shops are. (laughs) And have a cup of coffee and fellowship for just a minute before we went back home. And so we were having that donut. And he said, I looked at my pastor. I could see how weary he looked, how tired he looked. I could sense he was discouraged. And I said, pastor, what's wrong? And Wayne said, the pastor told me, brother Wayne, I just can't keep up. I need to do this. I need to do that. I have the administration. I have another need. This person threatened to commit suicide. This lady's in intensive care. I've got to study to preach. I just don't know if I can go any further. And Wayne said, right there, I determined me and Nancy are going to spend the rest of our lives helping God's pastor. So there are many, and many of you have that kind of heart, who try to come alongside. And it's not because the pastor's suffering and you're not. I know a lot of you struggle in a lot of ways and you have heavy burdens and loads. But here's the thing to think about. Your eternal soul depends on the preaching of the word. There's a vital centrality to your eternity based on the preaching of the word. I didn't set it up this way, by the way, God did. So him staying revived and refreshed, that was Paul used, that's the word Paul used of the household of Onesiphorus. Him being refreshed benefits your eternal soul. I would say over my years of pastoral ministry, I have more pastors discourage me to be faithful in what God's called me to do than I've had pastors who encouraged me. Why do you think that today we have pastors from all over the country and literally all over the world asking to connect with us, to be encouraged, to be mentored by our ministry? It's because they see what you're living out. They see the way I'm functioning in ministry, and they want to know how can we get there. It's because they look around in their towns and in their counties and sometimes in their state, and they say, we can't find anybody who will encourage us in these ways. But you guys are on this track. Would you help us? And, of course, to this day, we've always tried to be there and help them. Well, number five, another reason why this, there's, this is a unique, challenging task, and maybe why Paul said, or one of the reasons Paul said, consider them worthy of double honor, it's a draining task. This would be obvious after D, would it not? It's a draining task. Spurgeon used to say that preaching is heart work. Preaching drains all of your emotions. I, I don't know how guys preach and don't feel it. I don't get that. I feel it to my bone marrow when I preach. But when I get through preaching on Sunday, I, I feel like I just came out of a washing machine. I'm just, it's, I'm just gone. <laughs> Sometimes people want to ask me important questions on Monday, and I said, don't ask me anything on Monday. I can't think on Monday. Sunday night, I can't think at all. It's a dra- it just has a unique draining thing. I'm glad that when I was in my young adult years, I worked heavy construction, non-union. When I got through tying reinforcement bar and building concrete frames, I shoveled gravel. I know what a hard day's work is. And I'm glad I got to do that because it's allowed me to now transfer that over and begin to learn what, how draining mind, emotion, and heart work is. Spurgeon also said preaching is heart work, so when a pastor's heart is broken, he has to labor with a broken tool. Again, that's to the detriment of those under his ministry. Thank you again for being the kind of church that encourages pastors. I believe, I believe this with all my heart. You think if one pastor stays faithful, the multiplied effect on the countless number of souls, you can't even count it all. It's the greatest way you can multiply God's ministry is take care of faithful pastors. And you do such a good job of it. 
You know, and I, I used to think this again, I, I'm guilty of most of these things when I first started out in ministry. So many people view the pastor as superhuman. Oh, he's God's man. He's called of God. So he has this extra special ability to, to do all this stuff. No, he doesn't. Matter of fact, it's right the opposite. You know, God has a pattern of calling weak men. God has a pattern of calling men with, with, with lots of physical maladies. Do you know the number of mentors that I study through the generations, the old great preachers of the past who struggle with deep depression? Spurgeon, Spurgeon, the most published author that's ever existed. More men have read Spurgeon's sermons than any other preacher who's ever preached or wrote sermons. Spurgeon used to say, beneath the castle of despair is a dungeon, and that's where I live much of the time. God just seems to call weak vessels. You know why? That the glory and surpassing greatness may be of God and not of men. It's draining. Spurgeon spent the last, what, 15 or so years of his life. You know where he lived the last 15 or so years of his life? He lived on the French Riviera in a posh condo because <laughs> he was too sick to preach. He'd come back and preach some and get sick and go back. Now, Spurgeon might have been part of his own problem because the Bible does tell pastors to get away and rest, and he probably didn't do much of that. But nevertheless, it is a draining thing. A pastor can find himself in vicious cycles. Number one, every member tends to have a subjective list of the things they think the pastor was hired to do. Every church member tends to have a subjective list of the 10 things they think the pastor hired to do. And you add them all up, there's a bunch of different things he's supposed to do. Not at Grace Life shows, but in the typical situation. I remember um, one of our men who's been faithful for years when he was at another church, they put out a questionnaire. They were without a pastor. And they put out a questionnaire and asked the church, what do you want in a pastor? Here I go. I'm going to run through a wall again. Who cares what you want in a pastor? God gives pastors their, their job description. Where did that come from? Well, this man said, you know what? He said, I had to write in evangelistic. He said, I didn't even have that listed as one of the options. If I was interviewing for a church and they said, we polled our people and here's what they wanted a pastor, I'd say, you're talking to the wrong man. I'm not interested in going anywhere that wants to give me the whims of the people. Now, if you can open to the text and say, here's what we want, then I'm interested. So the church can sometimes have all these different expectations and he feels like he's never met those fully. And then his wife and children often feel neglected because you can't get around and give them the attention that they need. He has so little left in the tank for them. I think that's one of the reasons why we, well, it is one of the reasons why we have for many, many years now invited pastors in our network, church plant pastors, come here for a week. I'll let you stay on my farm. You can stay in a hotel. Just chill out for a week and get some rest. Get the things off of you for a little while. Jesus said this. The first time he sent his disciples out to preach, I think it was a two-day preaching tour, two days, Mark 6, 31 and 32. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Well, there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. He said, the people are going to kill you if you don't get away from them. 
you, to be effective for them, you're going to have to pull away from them. It really was a gift from God when a man called me from Idaho and said, I want to sell you my dad's farm. I'd been hunting on it for years. And I thought, buy a farm? I had zero in the bank, zero. But I went to the bank, and it kept working out and kept working out, and I bought a farm. Well, me and the bank own a farm. And um, it's my secluded place. I can get away there. And I know my friends in Africa and, and Europe are going to say, what's a bush hog? They think I'm talking about an animal. But I get on the bush hog, and I put those stoppers in my ears, and I get fired back up again to come do what I do. Now, if you told me, now, Pastor, you've got to have these office hours, and you've got to do this and this, I don't think I'd make it because I got to have what Jesus gave these men coming off two days of ministry, come to a secluded place and rest a while so you can be good again later. So he says, come away by yourselves. And brothers and sisters, if you don't come away, you'll come apart. Now, so that's a word for some of you. Some of you need to come away from some of your labors and difficulties. Remember my sermon, Work and Rest? It's one of my most popular sermons because the whole time I tell you to quit working so much and rest more. And y'all just love it. Well, that's true for all of us. And some of you need to hear that word this morning. Some of you business guys who've started on your home, own business, you'll grasp this and some of the others will grasp it to a degree too. But for the pastor of a church, the harness of responsibility never completely comes off. I don't care where he is or how far he travels. My wife preaches at me all the time, Jeff, we don't need to go somewhere and you meet with a pastor. We don't need to take a break and you read theology books and think about the church. Why can't, just take it off. It's just hard for me to do. And that's my own sin. But even if you do your best, you're still the pastor. I'll never forget, before I became the senior pastor here, I, was, I had off on Tuesday when I was associate pastor. And I mean, I went hunting, I went fishing, and I didn't care about anything. It just, I was just free. But I remember Bob Pittman telling me, Brother Jeff, when you get behind this desk, it's different. I thought, what's he talking about? I work as hard as he does. I work maybe longer hours than he does. I get tired too. And then all of a sudden he left, and now guess who's sitting behind that very desk? And I found that it's different because you never really take the harness off. The only... Well, I'll say the most purebred redneck I know is David Young. But he's a good brother and a godly man too, amen? (laughs) And David used to work in the logging woods with workhorses and mules. And I've been around workhorses a little bit, but not like David. I mean, he he comes from way back in the sticks. I said, David, when 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 that horse is well-trained, I mean years and years, all that horse is known... Get up at daylight, put the harness on him. But when you put that harness on, he, he knows the command's coming. I got to tighten up and get with it. And he's hauling and he's pulling, he's dragging logs all day long. If in the evening you bring him back, because I've seen this happen, when they take that harness off in the evening, that old horse will jump, wiggle and snort and buck a little bit, and then he'll settle down, then he can rest. I asked David, I said, what do you think would happen if they never took that harness off? He said, it'd probably kill it. Because it psychologically knows if the harness is on, I've got to be tensed up and ready to go. Pastors never really get to take the harness. You know why? Because eternity is on the line. 
You're called to a task where you, your children, your grandchildren's eternal destiny depends on the faithful preaching of the Word of God. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, Who, who's able for such task? Who can, who, who can contemplate that? I'll tell you what helps you is the sovereignty of God. If God wasn't sovereign, I'd quit tomorrow. Number six. Maybe one of the reasons why Paul said the challenges are unique and the man's worthy of double honors because so few are teaching you what I've taught you today. So few are saying these things. So few are saying the pastors are scared to death to say these things. I'll never forget. I remember Alvin Lynch was with us. He was an elder. Then Alvin will remember this, but the elders went to hear John MacArthur at one of John MacArthur's shepherd conferences in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There probably wasn't 80 people there many years ago. And a guy, a young pastor got up and said, Dr. MacArthur, you've taught so much about preparing and studying and preaching. He said, but in my church, uh, there's no way to have time to really do that. They're asking me to do this and that. They expect this and that. And I remember Dr. MacArthur stopped him and very bluntly said, tell them that's not your job. I was shocked. I was shocked. I said, you kidding me? You going to tell those deacons and tell those little ladies and they call on you, that's not your job? That's what John MacArthur told them to do. Now, think about that, though. Countless millions, tens of millions around the world have been blessed by John MacArthur's preaching and teaching. And if he hadn't had that kind of conviction, he'd never been able to do that kind of work. You don't hear that. That's just not being said often. So many are not doing that. Seth Channels here and other pastors will be listening to this. Brothers, we've got to teach our people these truths. They need to hear it. It's in the Word of God. Double honor means what double honor means. So many pastors have quit today. I don't mean quit the pastorate, though that's tragically happening at record rate. But they've quit trying to, quote, work hard at preaching and teaching, end quote, as Paul teaches here. And they've quit because they say they can't do it any longer. There's no way they can continue on preaching and teaching and studying and do everything else that's expected. All right, let's move on. I have three thoughts under the Roman numeral two, which is incomplete notions. Here's some thinking or some notions that are true, but if you don't get the balanced truth, they begin, they are actually completely false. A notion that's true, but it's incomplete. And they're pretty prominent in the church. Let me, let me just give you an illustration how the whole balance of a truth is important. In verse 18 of our text, Paul says, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Well, so that's in the Bible, so let's go out there and make sure none of our church members muzzle their ox while he's threshing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying is that's an illustration of don't let the pastor preach and be faithful in serving you without taking care of him materially. You need the whole thought to understand what it's saying. The Old Testament is true, but if you miss the balanced completion of the New Testament, you've missed everything. Jesus fulfills the law. He frees us from the condemnation of the law. We need the whole thought. First incomplete notion, number one, that my honor and my offering goes to God. I mean you. That's an incomplete notion. My honor and my offering is unto God. Of course it is. Of course it is, but it's incomplete. 2 Corinthians 8, 5, Paul commends the Macedonians. 
And he said, first, they gave themselves to the Lord. Of course they did. They honored him first. And then they gave us themselves to us. God's called preachers by the will of God. He's talking about them giving offerings to help the church at Jerusalem. They said he gave, they gave themselves to the Lord and gave themselves to help the men of God who were raising this offering for the church in Jerusalem. Our love, our respect, and our honor to support God, listen to me, is not separated from loving, honoring, and supporting the man of God. I'll say that again. In Scripture, our love, respect, and honor and support to God is never separated from loving, honoring, and supporting the man of God. I'm not going to take the time to overview 1 Corinthians 9 again, but let me go to 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14. We're in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14. He said, do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share in the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So when you bring your offerings, I'm bringing that to God. No, you're bringing it to God to the end of supporting the men of God. That's the complete notion. Malachi chapter 3, it'll be on your screen. Here we have the Jews in rebellion. And of all things, God brings up the priesthood. And he brings up them bringing their tithes and offerings to support the priesthood. But notice how it's worded. worded. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? God responds in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Why? To honor God, to worship God? Of course. But that's not what he says here. So that there may be food. Food for who? The priest. Your material support the priest. There may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of the ground nor your vine in the field. Cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. We have a devourer in our land. It's called COVID-19. I wouldn't dare ask my God to save my household from the devourer if I was robbing God. If I was robbing God, I'd get it right and then continue to ask God to help me. But notice the context. You bring your offering to the Lord's temple and it's used for the priest's support. And that is a type that's carried over unto the New Testament. Some people say, well, pastor, that's Old Testament. It sure is. It's more serious than the New Testament. You have more light. You have more truth. They only had a shadow of Jesus. We look back and know Jesus came. How much more serious, Hebrews chapter 10 says, how much more serious than just violating the law of Moses to trample and defeat the blood of Christ. Is somebody else paying my salary? Brother Matt's salary, Brother Steve's salary, Brother Tom's salary, Brother David's and all of us. Is somebody else paying that because they're taking up your slack because you're a God robber? And I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I have not done myself and lived myself. It's not about the amount of money. It's not about the balance in the bank. It's about you 
bringing the offering to do your duty for a service that's been performed for you by God's man. And it's a spiritual discipline. Every week when you bring the tithe and offering, it reminds you, God, I'm trusting you, not me. I'm trusting you, not my business. I'm trusting you, not my employer. All right, number two, under incomplete notions, something that's not complete. The church has many ministries and all are profitable. Of course, of course we do. So many, but that's incomplete. Preaching is the primary thing. Preaching is the hub of the will. You remember our will illustration? Preaching the word and the power of the spirit is the centerpiece because the hub drives everything else. Listen to me. Everything else depends on faithful preaching of the word from the pulpit. If the pulpit is weak, every other ministry will be weak. And if the pulpit is sound, the other ministries eventually, takes time sometimes, will be sound. Everything depends on that. So maybe that's one reason why Paul picks out working hard at preaching and teaching as the office where we need to be especially faithful in showing double honor. What happens in churches, we begin to emphasize gifting and service. Oh, she is so gifted. We got to get her involved in this, this, and this ministry. Oh, he is so gifted. We've got to get him in this and this ministry. Oh, she works so hard. We've got to get them doing this. Oh, he's such a hard, faithful worker. We got to get him. And those, that's good things, by the way. But that's secondary to one other thing. There's one other thing that's absolutely foundational and primary are all the gifting and all the service is worthless. Are you ready for it? I wonder if any of you could guess it. Gospel humility. God wants you humbled more than he wants you serving. He wants you doing your service with every moment of your sweat, every moment of your diligence, every moment of your exhaustion, every moment of your giving to help the church go forward. He wants in every moment you to say, I'm unworthy even to do this. And you know what builds gospel humility in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Preaching the word and the power of the spirit. That's the way God ordained it to work. That gives us a sweet, new, humble heart and tenor and spirit. And then with that spirit of humility, we can go forth exercising our gifts and doing our service in the body. And we're not doing it for us. We're doing it. We're just grateful that we get to do it, that we're not in hell. And that builds unity and oneness. Some of you sitting here this morning, you've got one problem and one problem only, your stinking pride. Get over yourself and line up with the book. He said, Brother Jeff, sometimes when you get through preaching, I just feel like, woe is me. Well, good. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. That's not funny. That's true. It's meant to do that along with, woe is me, but thank God for Jesus. Woe is me, but I got a Savior. (laughs) Don't you love the Word of God? I'm trying to get through. You know some guy in the ministry out there going into the ministry, this is the kind of stuff he needs to be taught. You don't get this, but in your 40th year. You don't get this at year 8 or 12 or 16. These things are like beating iron on an anvil. They come out slowly. Preaching is the primary means to the saving of the soul. 
Romans 10, 6 and 7 says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Here's what he's saying. If you want to be saved, you're not to muster up your energy and say, let's all get all the strength we can and let's see if we can get to heaven and find Christ and be saved. He said, no, 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 you don't do that. Neither do you say, let's get all of our strength and energy. Let's go into hell or down into the lower realms to see if we can find Christ and find salvation. He said, you don't do that. That's not the way Christ is found. How is Christ found? Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then shall they call upon him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? You don't have to struggle to find Christ somewhere. You sit under the preaching of the word and Christ is revealed through the faithful preaching of the word of God. And preachers out there, that's when your people will die for you. When they've fallen in love with the Christ who's been unfolded to them and manifested to them through your preaching. Because they'll say, that's priceless. That's priceless. Faith requires believing. Believing requires hearing. Hearing primarily requires preaching. And preaching requires being sent or supported. So the church has many ministries, but they're not all the same. Preaching the word is foundational. Number three, under incomplete notions. The pastor must not preach for money. Ah, see, that'll keep you alert for a few more minutes. The pastor must not, of course, absolutely. If there's a man who will quit preaching because the church fires him or he's not making anything, he's not called to preach. Go back and get my tapes back when you paid me $50 a week. That was my first salary. And you know what you'll say? He thought Nicodemus was Nicodemus. He thought a leper was a leaper, but he preached. I believe I preached with the same passion at $50 a week as I preach today, and I make a little more than that now. Of course he don't preach for the money. But that's incomplete. You, you, that's incomplete. First Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for refusing to pay him financially. And Paul says, what soldier out there would serve in the army without being compensated for it? What soldier, he says, works, fights at his own expense? Then Paul says, what vine keeper would keep the vineyard for a man and not get some of the proceeds? Then he says, what livestock keeper would keep the livestock and not get some of the produce from the livestock? What plowman could you hire to plow your crops and him not have hope of getting something back out of it? Then he says, what threshing ox? He uses it in 1 Corinthians 9, just like he does in 1 Timothy 5. What threshing ox should not have the muzzle moved so that while he's treading at the grain, it's not, he's not being treated cruelly. He's allowed to feed on some of the grain while he's working for you. Then he says, in the Old Testament priest, all the priests lived off the offerings brought to the temple. And then he ends with 1 Corinthians 9, 11, and 12. So we sowed spiritual things in you. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others shared in the right over you, you've paid other preachers, Paul is saying. 
If others shared the right, now notice the word he uses here, right. Paul says, I have a right to expect you to compensate me. Wow. Wow. Paul didn't preach for the money, but he did preach expecting it. The big difference in those two, one's unbiblical, one's biblical. We did not use this right, but we endured all things that we would cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Temporarily, Paul said, you're fussing about paying me, keep it. I don't want it. But then on another occasion, he said, I've robbed other churches because you didn't do your part. I've taken from them what you should have paid me because I ministered to you faithfully. So a pastor must not ever preach for the money, but he shouldn't preach expecting the money. (laughs) Charles Haddon Spurgeon had some orphanages. There was so, so much pain in the streets of London during the middle part of the 19th century. So Spurgeon tried to feed these orphans, and he would often say he preached for souls. That was a phrase he used. Well, he was out preaching outside of his church. And it was his pattern to use the offerings of the honorariums from outside the church to give to the orphanages. And one day he was preaching, and at the end of his sermon outside of his church, he takes up an offering. Afterwards, deacon, somebody in the church said, I thought you preached for souls. He said, I do, but this money feeds my orphans, and orphans can't eat souls. And if they did eat souls, there's not enough of your soul to feed one for one day. Well, you didn't take Spurgeon on. So there was a balance. Of course, he preached for souls. But you have to to hear the whole thing. So brothers and sisters at Grace Life Church and brothers and sisters, wherever you are hearing this, understand there's a two-sided coin here. Number one, the pastor must never preach for money. The other side of the coin but a godly church would never fail to compensate him generously. Both are true and always true. I preach, the pastor should preach for God's glory and honor. You give your tithes and offerings for God's glory and honor. But when I preach, it helps you personally and spiritually. And when you give your offerings, it helps me personally and materially. That's what Paul said. I sowed spiritually in you, I reap materially from you. That's some insights and some application on church members' duties to their pastor. I'm done with this text. In my final admonition to you, Grace Life, if you as an individual, the only thing I know to really reprove you on, and I don't know who you are because I don't check your giving. I may start this week. No, I'm not. I love you. If you're not faithful in doing your part, it's not about the amount of money needed. It's about you do. You are robbing God. He's given you a service. And I mean this honestly. You may have had a better pastor than me, a better preacher, but I've given you all I've got. You might find a better senior associate pastor than Vance Pittman, or Vance Pittman, Matt Fowler. Vance was mine years ago. Then Matt Fowler. But I'm telling you, Matt gives it all he's got. And we can go on down the line, Brother Steve, the rest of us. These are good men who give it all. The point is, is somebody else carrying your part of the duty? That's the point. You'll give an account at the judgment bar of God. If not, give an account to the devourer between now and then. 
I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to be hard. I'm trying to help you. Fulfill the church member's duty to God's preacher.